Praise the Lord. Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. Uh, we're continuing in our series that we're doing on the book of Acts. Uh, we are hoping eventually to cover the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, this is broken down into 12 parts. And as always, I'll mention uh, both the notes as well as the audio recordings are available in several different ways. Uh, you can either go to our website, new-life-ministries.org, and uh, you can click on the um, listen to online messages, which is a little bit misleading. I just did this this evening. Uh, you really can't listen to them directly on the website. You have to download uh, the notes or the files, but I would strongly recommend downloading the notes so you have them printed out or on your computer at least or other device. The simplest way of all, if you know how to do it, is to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast. That way, every time a message is recorded or new notes are added, they'll come automatically onto your smartphone or device, which I find quite convenient. In any event, we have come uh, to part four of this 12-part series. Part four we've entitled The Growth of the Jerusalem Church. And, of course, we've now seen the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And despite the command that Jesus gave them, to begin in Jerusalem, but then to move to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're not there yet. That's going to take some time. And actually, historians would tell us that basically it's about eight to ten years that the church in Jerusalem continued to grow before they went beyond the confines of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're still in Jerusalem. We're still looking at the growth of the church in Jerusalem. And we've now come to chapter 4 in the book of Acts. We finished last time in Acts chapter 3 with a notable miracle that took place at the temple gate where Peter and John were entering a crippled man who had been in that condition for many, many years, was instantaneously and miraculously healed. And that led to Peter being able to preach the gospel to many of the onlookers who were there witnessing this miracle. Now we've come to chapter 4, and we're going to begin to see a rather familiar pattern that repeats itself over and over through the book of Acts. And it goes something like this. The word of the Lord is preached. God confirms the preaching of his word with miracles, with signs and wonders. New souls are added. The church grows. And there's persecution. And then, after the persecution... The word of the Lord is preached again, more miracles, more signs, more growth, and then more persecution. So, chapter 4, we're going to see the first real uprising against this new movement called the Way. Interesting that the early Christians were referred to as the Way. And I want to read a rather large chunk of scripture, beginning with Acts 4, verse 1, I want to read all the way down to verse 22, and then we'll comment on different portions of this passage. Acts 4, verse 1 to 22, and if you are following in the outline notes, this is on page 45, again we're in part 4, uh, the growth of Jerusalem church, and this is page 45. Roman numeral 3, entitled Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, from verse 1. 
The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not, I'm sorry, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So we see from verse 1 the healing of this crippled man that took place right at the temple gate. And remember, immediately after his healing, he went running and leaping and praising God into the temple court. And that's where Peter and John were, and that's where they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, quite a stir has taken place, and we read here in verse 1, the priests the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. This is the very first of many persecutions and uprisings that would come against this thing called the church. And I want to keep mentioning this throughout because, as I've been saying from the beginning, We're studying the book of Acts in hopes that it will stir us up. Stir us up to repent, to return to God, and to seek the same power, the same moving of the Holy Spirit, the same revival that they had in this early church. But, 
with one caveat. If we want the power and the revival that they had in the early church, get ready, because we need to also expect opposition and persecution. It always goes hand in hand. Whenever the Spirit of God moves, there's going to be an opposition. Whenever people are saved, whenever the true Word of God is being preached with power and with conviction, there's going to be opposition. The flesh always resists the Spirit. And, as we're going to see in a moment, religion always opposes the moving of God's Spirit. And so here we have this first real opposition, this first real persecution to this infant early church. I want to talk just for a moment about three different groups that are mentioned here in verse 1. The priests the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. It doesn't just say the religious folks. It gives us more detail. Three groups, priests, captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. I think it represents three sources that are often behind persecution, opposition, even to this day. The priests, of course, represent established religion. Established religion doesn't want to let go of its control over people. And so it is often one of the first forces that rises up against a true moving of the Holy Spirit. The priests here we might take to represent religious intolerance religious opposition to the real church, to the real moving of the Holy Spirit. The captain of the temple guard, in the Message Bible, this is translated, the chief of the temple police. (laughs) This would sort of represent civil and political authority. So this represents a second source of opposition, persecution, enmity against the real church. Civil and political opposition. And boy, we know about that, even here in the U.S. It's increasing more and more by the day. Civil and political hatred, opposition for Jesus Christ and for his truth. And then the third group, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were told in the scriptures, and you can learn more about this on your own, they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They were uh, kind of like the modern naturalist uh, atheist types who don't believe in anything supernatural. They just believe in uh, everything has to be explained by natural causes. So, this source of persecution could represent more the academic, the naturalistic, the so-called scientific community, atheists, who don't believe in anything supernatural. So, sort of a three-pronged persecution has mounted itself against the early church here. The religious establishment, the civil authorities, and the naturalists who don't believe in anything supernatural. It says in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed. Now, you have to sit and think about this for a minute. What had the apostles done? Well, the only act that they could be accused of was healing a man who had been sitting at the temple gate for 40 years, begging alms, and now he's healed. They did a good work. They healed a sick man. And the only other thing they've been doing is explaining how and why this sick man got healed. He was healed in the name of Jesus. 
And so they're proclaiming Jesus, and they're proclaiming his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead, we're witnesses of that fact, and that's what they were telling the people in the temple. But we read here, these three groups that we just listed, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That expression, greatly disturbed, it comes from a Greek word which means to toil through, to be worried, or to be grieved. Um, worried is probably the best of all the different meanings of this word. Why would they be worried that the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming to them Jesus. This is very important for us to understand, and it helps us to understand where a lot of persecution and opposition comes from. It's pure and simple. It's founded in fear and jealousy. We're going to see this over and over in the book of Acts. The religious establishment is afraid and they are jealous because they're already realizing their position, their authority, their control over the people is now being threatened and undermined by these unlearned, uneducated apostles. They're threatened, and that's why they're disturbed, but I think a better translation, again, would be they're worried. They're worried. They're afraid now because, number one, a great miracle has taken place. They didn't work any miracle. They were powerless. They were impotent to do anything about this lame man that they saw every day at the temple gate. Now, the apostles have demonstrated supernatural power to heal even a crippled man, and they're boldly proclaiming this Jesus. Fear and jealousy are behind this first persecution. The priests and the Sadducees, who were both involved in religious instruction, and, yes, religious control over the people. Uh, they felt that their claim to being the sole teachers of truth and the leaders of the people, it was being threatened now. And therefore, they had to take action. The apostles preaching the resurrection of Jesus this would have been particularly unsavory to the Sadducees, because remember, they don't believe in resurrection. So this would have really stirred them up. Eyewitnesses boldly saying, Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him dead, and we saw him alive again. Matter of fact, we just finished spending 40 days with the risen, resurrected Jesus. So, this would have really irked the Sadducees. So, we have these three groups now that are stirred up, they're jealous, they're worried, they're angry, they're afraid. And what do they do? They arrest Peter and John. They put them in the prison, just for one night, and then the following morning, they're going to bring them out for further questioning. But, Notice something very interesting, and I want to read these first four verses together again so that you get the effect. The priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail 
until the next day, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So we've gone from 120 to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, and now already the number has increased to 5,000. The moral of the story, and we find this all throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you can lock up God's people. You can put them into the deepest, darkest dungeon. You can chain them, but you cannot chain the Word of God. The Word of God cannot be bound. Matter of fact, whenever persecution has come against God's people, either in the Old Testament, in the case of the Jews and their prophets especially, or in the New Testament, whenever persecution has come, it only causes the Word of God to spread, to increase, and for God's people to increase in number and in power. So, Peter and John are bound, but the Word of God is not. The church continues to grow. Now it is over 5,000 followers. So, the following morning, the Jewish leaders and all the others that we mentioned, they bring Peter and John out for sort of a mock trial. They're going to question them. And this is what we read about in verses 5 to 7. And the, the court, I want you to notice this, the court that is now going to question them, it includes the very rulers, elders, and teachers of the law that tried and convicted Jesus Christ and had him crucified. These are the very same men. And so, here we have, some of the names are mentioned for us, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, and some other names are mentioned there. And I've given you a number of references in the notes in the various Gospels. Uh, you can look these up. Hopefully the names sound familiar to you because they're all mentioned in the Gospel account, particularly of Jesus' trial and his ultimate conviction and being sentenced to death and being crucified. This is quite a scene, and I hope you can catch the power of this. Here stand... Peter and John, before the very same authorities that plotted Jesus' arrest and his death. Now, fast forward a little bit of time, here are two of Jesus' disciples. Jesus is now crucified, dead, buried, risen from the dead, ascended back up into heaven, leaving behind these eyewitnesses that are boldly proclaiming, Jesus, the one you crucified, is risen from the dead. Wow, what a powerful picture. The very authorities that hated Jesus, had him arrested, and actually were responsible for his death. We'll read about that a little more here in Peter's third sermon, where again, he doesn't mince words, he's not politically correct, he looks them square in the eye and said, you betrayed him, you denounced him, you had him crucified, you killed the Prince of Life, but God raised him from the dead. Here stand Peter and John, before those very same authorities. And in verse 7, Peter and John are questioned, by what power or what name did you do this? It's a very interesting question. I think they already knew the answer. They knew the name that Peter and John were proclaiming. That's what angered them. They knew they were proclaiming the name of Jesus. But there's more to this. When they say, by what name did you do this? 
The Greek word here is the Greek word onoma, which often conveys the idea of authority. In other words, by what authority are you doing these things? Who authorized you to heal this crippled man? Who authorized you to stand boldly in our temple proclaiming this Jesus? Let me read to you uh, verse 7 in the Message Bible. It says, They, all of the Sanhedrin, stood Peter and John in the middle of the room and grilled them. Quote, Who put you in charge here? What business do you have doing this? I think that really captures the essence of their question. By what power or what name did you do this? What is the authority? What is the power behind what you're doing? And oh, what a beautiful setup for Peter to start preaching his third message. And we saw in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, we saw again in the temple courts after this lame man was healed. This is a very different Peter. This is not uh, a cowardly, milk-toast Peter who denied Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. This man is bold as a lion now. He is boldly preaching Jesus. And in every one of these three sermons, we find some similarities, including this one. He is going to let loose on these guys and let them know straight and to the point. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Now you better repent. And I love verse 8. It says, Then, after they ask this question, Peter steps right up to the plate, takes a deep breath, and he answers them. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. Oh my goodness, look out. Get ready. Fasten your seatbelts. Every word here is important. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, Rulers and elders of the people. In other words, Give me your undivided attention. I am full of the Holy Ghost. And have I got an answer for you? This is interesting in several ways. First of all, it says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. This tells us a couple of things. We've already seen this. They were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. This was not a one-time experience. Over and over, we're going to find they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to you and me? We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just, oh, hallelujah, I remember 38 years ago, in that prayer meeting, I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was such a wonderful experience. Great. How about today? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit today? Every day we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, Ephesians 5 says, Be continuously filled with the Spirit. So, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is now going to answer them. And because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, we will see very clearly in verse 13, these men saw something in Peter and John. They saw boldness. The Holy Spirit has made these men bold as lions. Let me read to you again from the message translation, this verse 8. I love it. It says... With that, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, let loose rulers and leaders of the people. I love that. He let loose. Peter is 
going to let loose now. He's not going to hold anything back. What we are not going to see in Peter's reply is mincing of words, political correctness, being careful with how he phrases things so he doesn't offend anybody. No, he's full of the Holy Ghost, and he's going to cut loose now. In other words, you want to know by what power and what name we did this? Oh, you better sit down, because I'm going to cut loose now, and I'm going to let you know real, plain, and simple. And in Peter's response... He basically outlines five critical things, and let's list them. Number one, these leaders were upset. He knows that. He acknowledges that. Why were they upset? Well, they were upset because a lame man who had been crippled for 40 years has been healed. <laughs> That's what Peter says in verse 9. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. So, number one, the leaders were upset because of an act of kindness. Now, Peter doesn't say this, but it is implied these leaders all knew this lame man. Everybody in Jerusalem knew him. That's why his healing created such a stir. These religious leaders knew this crippled man. They had never done anything to help his condition. They were impotent. They were powerless to change the fact that he was lame and he was crippled. Thus, for 40 years, he had been sitting there at the temple gate begging for a handout. Number two, Peter makes it very plain. The crippled man was healed by the power and the authority of Jesus' name. That was their question. By what power and what name did you do this? Peter answered them. He was healed by the power and the authority of Jesus' name. This was the same Jesus that these leaders had crucified. And this brings me to the third point in his very brief response. He tells them in no uncertain terms, starting again in verse 10, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, <clears throat> it is by the name, remember name signifies authority, it is by the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that, notice he, he always adds that, um, just to remind them, you are the ones that crucified him, but God is the one who raised him from the dead. It's in that name that this man stands before you healed. Now pay close attention to verse 11. He is, that's Jesus, and then he quotes. He's quoting a messianic prophecy tucked away, kind of hidden away, in Psalm 118, verse 22. And he quotes it, and this Prophecy, by the way, will be quoted several more times. Here's the quote. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus quoted that very verse when he was on earth. You see that in the Gospels. It's quoted again here. But with a little bit more of a personal touch... Peter stands before this group of the religious establishment, the civil authorities, and the Sadducees, and he says, you fulfilled 
Psalm 118, verse 22. You are the builders that rejected God's stone. God's rock of salvation. You guys rejected him, but he has now become the capstone. Whew! Wow! The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Notice he keeps mentioning the name. That was their question. By what power or what name did you do this? Well, Peter's answer is, it's the name, the authority of Jesus by which this man is healed, but then he broadens it. It's in the same name of Jesus that salvation is now possible. And salvation will come through no other name. It'll come in no other authority. It'll come in no other way. Salvation is now found only in and through the name of Jesus. Jesus taught that in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Paul would later confirm this in his letter to Timothy in that well-known scripture, 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, one bridge, one Savior, one way to get to the Father. So, he hits all the points here. By what authority? It's the name of Jesus. If we're being called the task here, it can only be for a good deed that we did, because a crippled man has been miraculously healed. And it took place in the name, in the power, in the authority of Jesus. By the way, the Jesus you crucified and rejected, fulfilling Yet another prophecy now, found in Psalm 118.22, you builders rejected the chosen cornerstone of God's new temple. And to confirm it, God raised him from the dead. And he's now performing miracles, signs and wonders, in that name, the name of Jesus. Well, that ends Peter's short little message, and now let's look at the response. Verse 13. When they saw the courage, or some Bibles say the boldness, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, remember, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what's making him so courageous. He's full of the Holy Spirit. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What impressed them most was Peter's boldness. That's what it says. What they noticed was his courage, or his boldness. The word in Greek is parhesia. Let me explain to you some of the meanings of this word. You don't need to remember the Greek word, but it's parhesia. And here's what it really means. All outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, Assurance, boldness, confidence. I like that definition, all-out-spokenness. In other words, telling it like it is. Not being politically correct, not mincing words, 
not being careful with your words, just cutting loose. Remember, that's what it really means. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, let loose. He's going to speak his mind openly, bluntly, frankly, with assurance, with boldness, and with confidence. Oh, how we need this both in the churches and in the political arena. Thank God the political election is over in America. Thank God it's over. And if I could pray one thing for every single politician from president right on down, I would pray this. I pray that they can learn a lesson from Peter. Stop speaking a bunch of political correctness. Stop speaking what the people want to hear. Stop speaking a bunch of garbage that'll just get you elected. And start telling the truth. Stop mincing words. Tell us like it is. Please, politicians, please, preachers, tell us the truth. Stop mincing words. Stop the double speak. Stop the political correctness. Tell the truth. That's what Peter did. And that's what impressed this religious Sanhedrin. They saw that Peter and John had boldness. They had courage because they told them like it was. You crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead. You want to know how this crippled man got healed? He got healed in the name of Jesus. Oh, that some preachers would stand up with this kind of boldness when they're asked to pray at political events instead of praying some generic prayer in, in the name of God, amen. No, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again from the dead, and it's in His name to whom God gave all power and authority that we pray. God help us to stop being mealy-mouthed, milk toast Christians. God, give us boldness in the marketplace, in the workplace, in the political arena, in the classroom, on the college campus. God, give us boldness. And we're actually going to see this a little later on in this same chapter. That's what they prayed for. More boldness. Oh, God, give us boldness now to stand up for the truth, to stand up as ambassadors representing the name of Jesus. Now, it says when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized something. These were unschooled, ordinary men, unlike themselves. Oh, these high priests and Sadducees and all the religious elite, boy, they were men of letters. They had gone to school. They were learned and highly educated. They had all their former, formal religious training. They were experts in the law. These were the guys that knew God and His Word, or so they thought. So they thought. And let me just add a little side note here, and we're going to keep coming to back, back to this. When you see this kind of religious persecution originating, especially from the religious folk, it is absolutely stunning and amazing how blind and how deceived religious people can become. Oh yes, religious people who think they are serving God and doing God a great favor 
are actually imprisoning and even putting to death God's true servants. That's how blinding and how deceiving religion can be. And so these very religious leaders, in their arrogance, they're looking down their noses at Peter and John because they are not schooled like they are. They are not highly trained and highly educated like they are. These are Galilean fishermen, just crude fishermen who haven't been to school. They're, uh, let me read to you the translation from the Amplified Bible. It says these Galilean fishermen were, quote, unlearned and untrained in the schools. They were common men with no educational advantages. They had none of the formal religious training that these experts had. But they, like Jesus, were speaking with authority. Now, I'm not against education. I'm a teacher. Education isn't in itself evil. But there are many warnings for us in the New Testament. When we put too much confidence in training, intellect, mental acuity, filling our minds with a bunch of knowledge and trusting in our knowledge and our intellect and not in the Holy Spirit, it can be very, very dangerous. And as I've just mentioned, blinding and deceiving. And we actually begin to trust in our intellect and in all of our training. Paul puts it best, I think, in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge alone can often puff us up the way it did these religious leaders. And make no mistake, pride is equal to deception. The Bible declares, the pride of your heart has deceived you. So in their religious pride and superiority, like a veil, blindness and deception has come over them to the point these are the very men that not only could not recognize Jesus as being the Messiah predicted in their own scriptures, they were guilty of sentencing him to death and crucifying him. Wow. So, they're amazed that Peter and John, not being educated as they were, nevertheless had authority. They had boldness and they had courage. They couldn't explain it. They just couldn't under understand or explain what the secret behind this new movement was. But, it does seem to answer their own question. Let me read verse 13 again. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized, A, that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note, B, that these men had been with Jesus. Ah, they seem to have figured it out. They connect their boldness and courage not with how many years they went to school, but how many years they have been spending with Jesus. They had spent three and a half years with Jesus. More importantly, they don't understand this, but the courage and the boldness they're now seeing is because Jesus is living in them. Not only have they been with Jesus for the past three and a half years, they're with Jesus now. Because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in them, and Jesus Christ is in them. I've given whole sermons on 
this part of verse 13, and I won't belabor the point, but how important that we spend time with Jesus. Not just learning about Him. Not just filling our heads with some scriptural knowledge, with some doctrinal beliefs or outline, but actually spending time in the presence of Jesus. Because something happens to us when we're in His presence. Something rubs off on us. The glory of God rubs off on us when we spend time in His glory. The the sweetness of Jesus begins to seep into our pores, as it were, when we are spending time with Him. So, the moral of the story, if you and I want to be effective as witnesses for Christ, there isn't any shortcut. We have to spend time with Him. We need to spend time in prayer, in worship, in the Word of God. We have to seek Him with all of our hearts. And it just takes time. These men have been with Jesus. They had been with Him a whole lot of time. Hours and hours and hours, days and days, three and a half years, they had now been walking with Him. They had been with Him. Now, in verses 14 to 16, let me read this part again. After seeing this boldness, it continues in verse 14. But since they, the religious leaders, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, let me insert here again. This crippled man, unlike a lot of people that come to our churches with a need, we pray for them, they get healed, they get a new job, they get help from the Lord, and we never see them again. They run away. They're like the nine lepers. This man ran into the temple, stayed with Peter and John, clinging to them, and I want you to notice even after Peter and John have been locked up in jail, these are not real popular figures now in Jerusalem, even after they've been locked up in jail and released from jail, this man is still standing there right beside them. Verse 14 again. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, with Peter and John, There was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. And here's their problem. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. The Jewish leaders, they have a real serious problem here. They have a dilemma, and they've expressed it. They understand what it is. They have a miracle standing right in front of them. They can't deny it. The miracle is there. The lame man who has been healed is standing right there in the middle of this whole conversation. And God has a way of shutting the mouths of the lions. He has a way of paralyzing the accusing tongues of his enemies when he manifests his power, as he had done here in the Jewish temple. And they admit, We cannot deny that a great miracle has taken place here. Okay, so we got a problem. We got a miracle here in the temple. That part we can't explain away. We can't deny it. And we have a bigger problem. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. God deliberately chose this lame man because. Everybody knew him. 
And God knew that when he got healed, everybody would know a miracle had taken place. Everybody in Jerusalem knew about this miracle. So we have two problems. The miracle standing right there, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it, and it gets worse. They're all now becoming believers and joining the way. They're all repenting, believing in Jesus Christ, and becoming Christians, becoming followers of Jesus and his disciples. So, they have a real serious problem. They got a miracle, everybody in Jerusalem knows about it, and they're losing their following. Many, many Jews in Jerusalem are now becoming Christians. They're becoming believers and joining the way. So, here's their dilemma, and they said this themselves. We've got to be real careful here, because if we punish these apostles for performing an act of kindness, that's not going to look real good. But if we don't stop them, we're going to lose our following here. Because more and more of our people are going over to their side. So they have a problem. The apostles, they can't beat them and do anything real bad to them. Nevertheless, they got to do something to stop them. So they come up with a compromise. In verse 17, here's their compromise. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice what they're afraid of. They're afraid that this thing is going to keep spreading among the people. They're going to start losing their hold on the people. And when you're in a religious establishment as these men were, you're in danger of losing your power, your influence, your notoriety, and your control over the people. Oh, that's a mouthful what I just said, and I'm going to have to wait till next time to dig deeper into that. But this is what's wrong with most of the religious establishment. People get settled into positions of power, influence, and control. And whenever they're in danger of losing that power, that influence, that control, they will show their true colors. And they will fight tooth and nail to keep their control, to keep their power, to maintain their influence. Note once again... The real motivator here is fear and jealousy. They're afraid of losing control over their people. They're afraid that this thing is going to keep spreading. And therefore, what they do is use fear to try to stop the spread. They're going to try to scare Peter and John into keeping quiet. And so, they threaten them. They warn them not to speak any longer in Jesus' name. That's the only thing they can possibly think of doing, is to threaten them, warn them not to talk anymore about Jesus Christ. We're going to have to stop here, but we'll... Pick it right up here next time. And remember, Peter and John are filled with the Holy Spirit. And even these religious leaders have taken note of their boldness and courage. And they seem to have failed to take into account the boldness of these two men. Threats are not going to work 
with Peter and John. You can threaten them with anything in the book, but they're going to come right back and continue to speak in the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ. So, what we're witnessing here is the first uprising, the first opposition, the first persecution, and it's coming from three different sources. The priests, the religious establishment, the temple guard, the police, the civil authorities, and the Sadducees, that sect that doesn't really believe in anything supernatural, sort of naturalistic, humanistic, uh, atheistic kind of thinking. All three of them are uniting against the move of the Holy Spirit and against the church. Times really haven't changed too much, and if you and I want to be a part of God's move in the world in these last days, which is being brought about by the same Holy Spirit, we better prepare ourselves. There will be opposition. There will be persecution. The flesh always persecutes the Spirit. The flesh always opposes the work of the Spirit. More about that next time. Let's pray as we close tonight, and let's thank God for the power and the authority that we have in Jesus' name. The religious folks, they wanted to know by what power, by what name did you do this? Peter answered them very plain and simple. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whom you crucified, but the one whom God raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Jesus has all power and all authority. He is risen from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand. He is now king of all kings, Lord of all lords. And the nations of this world, they can have their rulers, their uh, religious establishments, and even as we've just had here in the United States, we can have our elections for presidents and senators and congressmen. And sadly, we can even vote to legalize marijuana. We can vote on all kinds of things. Make no mistake. And let me tell you the word I heard from the Lord this morning when I first woke up. Daniel chapter 4, the Most High God rules over all the kingdoms of men. God is in charge. God is the king of all the kings. He's the president of all the presidents. He is the ultimate author, and therefore ultimate authority. And therefore, it's under his authority that we live and move and have our being, and he is our ultimate authority. Father God, I thank you and I praise you that the Most High rules. The Most High rules in all of the affairs of men. The Most High rules and presides over governments, over elections, over dictators, presidents, kings, and prime ministers. Oh, hallelujah. You have all power and all authority. And God, our prayer tonight, like any other night, is the same. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in earth as it always is in heaven. God, we seek the kingdom of God. We surrender and we submit to the authority of the King, and His name is Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we are reminded again, Your kingdom is not of this world. Your kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom, and it's that kingdom that we seek to be a part of, and that we seek to promote. Lord, let Your kingdom come. 
Let your authority reign over all the kingdoms of men. And we thank you that there's power in the name of Jesus. Power to heal, to deliver, to change, to set free, and to transform. And we're going to continue to proclaim that name in the land. We're going to continue to pray in Jesus' name that this nation, like all the other nations of the earth, will turn back to the living God. God, that you would pour out a spirit of repentance on this land. You would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oh God, this land is ripe for judgment. But surely we have found a little space of mercy and grace before your real judgment falls upon this land. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that many would hear your call now to repent and to turn to you, that you might forgive our sins, our iniquities, our great wickedness and arrogance, and we might find forgiveness and times of refreshing in the presence of a living God. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands now. 